You're listening to the Heal Better Fast podcast, dedicated to bridging the gap between alternative healthcare and mainstream medicine in utilizing everything good to help you feel great. We're glad you tuned in. Now here's your host, Dr. Michael Pound. Dr. Paul Wand has over 36 years of clinical and research experience in integrative neurology and incorporating the best of both worlds. And today, in our interview, Dr. Wand and I discuss how he uses the general principles of alternative medicine to treat the brain. We talk about the concussion epidemic and how he believes you can solve it. He believes that most doctors just don't understand how to properly diagnose a concussion or how to treat it. And in his upcoming book, The Concussion Cure, he talks about simple, easy ways to both diagnose and treat the brain. Here's Dr. Wand. Dr. Wand, welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you on today. Thank you for being here. So first of all, uh, I am excited because you are the first integrative neurologist I've had on the show. And since this show is all about bridging the gap between alternative healthcare and mainstream medicine, I figured how about bringing on a guest who has 36 years of clinical and research experience to be able to share with us kind of his side of the story on how you became where you're at. But first, uh, did you, I mean, did you grow up picturing yourself as a medical doctor? No, not really. I was very inquisitive as a child, and I was always interested in science. I did not know where that was going to lead to, uh, but I think my curiosity into science, which led me to become a biology major in college, ultimately led the path to you know pre-medical and then and then doctor, and then the curiosity continues on today, which enables me to perform my type of clinical research. Uh, which in turn enables me to find new methods of how to diagnose common conditions and how to provide better treatments than the, the existing treatments. Yeah, because to become a neurologist, I mean, you have to go through extensive school and then internships and residency just to specialize in that field. You take it a step further in being able to educate yourself more in the alternative healthcare side, which I know they don't get a ton of in medical school. And so I really commend you for that. But before we get into that, how, what would you describe, how would you describe what you do and what an integrative neurologist is? Well, integrative medicine is the um, combination of traditional medicine and alternative medicine which I think uh, is better described as the best of both worlds. And the way I got into it was in the early 90s uh, when I was working in the city of Hollywood, Florida, the owner or one of the owners of the Life Extension Foundation, which is a very major anti-aging group, uh, came to see me as a patient, and I was able to help him uh, recover from a couple of conditions that the other local neurologists could not because I was already combining some alternative uh, work with the traditional work. Anyway, um, you know, we got to talking and we sort of became friends, and he asked me if I wanted to be one of the doctors at the Life Extension, and I said, sure, because I like their philosophy. And um, it was at and through the Life Extension that I learned so much about uh, vitamins and supplements, and I started writing some articles with them and also learned about... Um, what's called bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, which is extremely important. And also, in general, in going to meetings and conferences and so forth, learning 
how to diagnose, you know, common conditions using, you know, alternative methods and then alternative treatments. And uh, it, it, it still goes on, um, you know, for example, um, the Life Extension recommended taking baby aspirin in 1981, so there was probably 20 years ahead of the curve of the regular, you know, medical community, and there's numerous other examples that go on from there. Um, the um, the neuro- neurological aspect I was able to incorporate is how the general principles of alternative medicine applied to you know to the brain. So I somehow I've just been fortunate over the years to pick up bits and pieces of information in or from very disparate places, and I I have the ability to integrate them, and so. I have treatments, for example, that can clean out arteries, which I, of course, employ for the brain, but works for the whole body. Um, treatments to uh, improve healing and to reduce scar formation, which is a very big deal, and especially in surgical cases. And, um, for example, uh, the use of magnets to treat pain, to reverse neuropathy, to prevent amputation. Uh, the, the, the examples go on and on and on. I have various machines in my office that no other doctors have because I just found out about them through various means and I can do therapy treatments on people and you know, I can help people with pain that uh, the other doctors can't and it just goes on and on and on. I mean, it's just, I, I, I'm not even sure myself how I find out about these things, but I just do. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because uh, I'm sure there's been some pushback from maybe some more straight colleagues. I know in my profession, when if there are some chiropractors look at me like, you you ad- do more than just adjust someone like, yeah, well, there's muscles attached to the bones. You got to work with those as well as the, the nutrition side. And so sometimes I'm, I'm looked at as a little on the fringe. So, uh, how about you? Do you find that you're very welcomed among, uh, your colleagues who maybe aren't as integrative or do you just kind of keep yourself in the, uh, the, the bubble of the office where, you know, everyone knows, knows better. Well, nowadays I'm just in the office because I stopped going to the hospital in about the year 2000 or so. But I went to many hospitals for many years and, of course, met colleagues and so forth. And I remember um, speaking to one neurologist in particular that I was explaining about this uh, FDA-approved medication that I use as an off-label manner for treatment of post-concussion syndrome and how well it worked, and he just kind of looked at me like, you know, what? (laughs) So, you know, I'm very used to the other doctors, you know, not thinking out of the box and not wanting to think out of the box. And some of them might be afraid. Some of the reasons might be because they're afraid to get sued, too. You know, I think that's in the back of everybody's mind. Yeah, and uh, you bring up a, a valid point when it comes to patient care because the standard of care, um, obviously, here in the U.S. is a lot different than you know other countries, and so there's just kind of this expectation maybe that we do certain things to get people the quickest results, the fastest results, so they don't they're not unhappy, right? Because if they're unhappy, then there is that potential of of something not going well. And so when in in regards to your practice, do you find I mean I I know that you probably get some spectacular results with some patients that fail, but also is are those those patients who just don't aren't patient enough maybe with the therapy that you're prescribing? I don't really run into that problem because contrary to many doctors I talk to my patients and oh, okay. I don't talk <laughs> I don't talk down to my patients. Yeah, yeah. And I don't use medical terms to confuse them. So I, I, I'm speaking their language at their level. So 
so they understand everything I say. And I also tell them, you know, like for treatment of a, of a post-concussion syndrome, you're talking at least six months, maybe a year. It takes that long for the brain to heal anyway, but that's six to 12 months is sort of like my typical treatment cycle. Can be shorter for some, can be longer for other, others, I should say. So you really set up that expectation up front so the patients know what to expect, and I think that's good. Now, you've mentioned a couple times that, obviously, you enjoy treating patients with concussions. That's kind of your area of expertise. And so let's talk a little bit about that and why you think it's so important that we take more of an integrative approach to concussion. Well, concussions are really uh, have become an epidemic in this country. And there's estimated to be somewhere between four and five million concussions a year as reported in the system through the emergency room. That does not count the people that have injuries with concussions and don't go to the hospital, which are quite a bit. And the problem with the diagnosis of concussion is that most doctors don't know the proper way to diagnose or treat. In fact, there is no standard treatment for the most common form of concussion, which is called mild traumatic brain injury, also known as MTBI. And the typical patient, you know, uh, goes to the emergency room, they may or may not have hit your head because it's not required to strike your head nor lose consciousness to sustain a concussion. And they'll go to the emergency room and they'll get a scan of the brain and we'll come back negative in the vast majority of the time. And the doctors will say, you know, you're going to be fine, just go home and rest and ask the treatment. Well, that is true for about 80% of the people. However, 20% of the people do not recover as anticipated. And that's the large number. That's at least 400 to 600,000 people a year. And those are the people and the patients that need these other more sophisticated type of diagnostic testing. A, to demonstrate that yes, there is a lesion, there is an abnormality in the face of a normal MRI, and some people have trouble understanding that, um, but I'm happy to explain it. And, and yes, part B, there is a treatment for them to get better based upon what those tests show. So let's go into that then. So uh, when we're thinking of objectively or, or treatment-wise, how do you, what's your criteria and, um, and then kind of your recommendation range? Well, uh, the, the first thing I do is, um, you know, if they have a, if they come into the office with a diagnosis of a concussion, I don't have to maybe ask all the questions that I would otherwise ask, which would be, you know, what happened, what are your symptoms, what are the severity, how long have they been present, and, and you know, what we call the taking the history of the patient. Um, after that, I perform a detailed neurological examination, which most neurologists do not do because they're in too much of a hurry, and I do schedule more time to see patients compared to what other physicians do. And I can typically find uh, little subtle things in the examination that are omitted by the other doctors. And with those findings, I, I confirm the diagnosis of post-concussion syndrome, and then I typically would order two diagnostic tests. And one test is called a quantitative EEG, also known as QEG, and the other test is a SPECT scan. So the quantitative EEG is performed like a regular EEG, which is about 20 wires or electrode sensors placed on specific points on the scalp. 
and then those wires go into a machine, a technician runs the test, and the machine acquires the brain waves and they're recorded. The traditional way to read that test is for the doctor like myself to look at those waveforms by a visual analysis, and that's been the way to do that from the early days of the 1940s or so when the technique started until about the mid-80s when computers came along and some smart researchers decided to apply certain uh, computer um, skills and mathematical functions to analyze portions of the tracing, which has the ability to dissect the different wave frequencies apart in a manner that we cannot do with a visual inspection. So new data is derived that we can't see no matter how hard you look at it. Once that information is available and digitized, it can be manipulated in numerous ways. And one way is to compare the patient's individual results to a group norm, which is called a normative database. And if the database is run, constructed uh, correctly, then the person's age and the gender is matched because there are differences. And when there's a difference between what the normal population shows and the patient in question, the difference is expressed by standard deviations. And generally speaking, anything over two standard deviations is considered to be abnormal, and we see deviations over 100. Not that that matters, except that makes it more difficult to get better. Uh, numerous other calculations are made. We could look at the connectivity of one point to the other 18 other points and vice versa in any combination. So that's a lot of combinations. So that's a lot of data right there. We can look at the size of the response called the amplitude and many others which I won't bore the audience with because it's very technical. The long and short of results of these electrical tests and all these type of analyses is that um, numerous abnormalities are detected and are quantified. So let's say that Somebody has too much slowing, which is what we typically see. Uh, they're supposed to, the brain is supposed to go at a certain frequency, and then it slows down because of the injury. And then a protocol is derived from the specific abnormalities that are detected to correct that. And this is a treatment which is called neurofeedback, which is basically it's biofeedback for the brain. And I don't know if you would like me to, to explain that further. I'd be happy to if you think the audience needs to have an explanation. Well, we've, we've talked a little bit about biofeedback on the show. Um, so okay. I think we can kind of go into, uh, well, well, first of all, so the, the QEG test and the SPEC test, are they covered by insurance? The, the EEG test is covered. The quantitative EEG is not covered by all insurances. Only so, certain insurances will cover it. Do you think that's why maybe it's not ran more frequently to help diagnose the test, or do you think it's just a time matter or a matter of time that the doctor has with the patients? No. there's That's a long story. Should I make it short? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go with the, the shortened version. I actually addressed this because this is a very pertinent question. In my book, which is called The Concussion Cure, which is being written, should be ready in the next couple of months or so, and the question is, why don't most neurologists know and order this test, quantitative EEG? And the answer has a couple of parts, but the main part is that most doctors are members of the National Society. And in this case, we're talking about the American Academy of Neurology. 
And this academy puts out what's called position statements. And the American Academy of Neurology has put out multiple statements over the years regarding the use of QEG, particularly for trauma cases and saying that it's not an appropriate test. Well, it turns out that the doctor who was responsible for writing that opinion uh, was caught falsifying data, not falsifying, but not presenting data in an accurate fashion in a legal case. And he was exposed and the case got settled. And this guy who actually is a uh, academician from UCLA, um, you know, he had an ethic complaint uh, raised against him, but nobody could uh, make it stick because of the jurisdiction problem. Anyway, um, there's other academies. For example, there's an academy um, of the um, um, epileptologists who are neurologists that specialize in EEG. And, and treating epilepsy seizure patients. And they have put out position statements that says that, yes, it is an appropriate test, but under these conditions. So it kind of got a bad name over the years, and it never got into the medical school curriculum so the doctors don't learn about it. So if you were to ask any doctor who's been around and, you know, practice for a while, they're going to say, oh, that's not a valid test. We don't do that. But actually, that's not true. So it's, it's, I call it dirty politics. Right. <laughs> and, and it's a shame because, um, you know, the truth is that it is a, when done correctly, like any other test, it's, a, it's an excellent test. And um, without that, you, you don't really know what you're doing in terms of a protocol for neurofeedback. There are, there are neurofeedback practitioners out there that will perform um, feedback without a protocol, but they're really guessing at what they're doing. And I should mention one other thing about the state-of-the-art neurofeedback. There's something called um, Loretta, L-O-R-E-T-A, uh, Z-score neurofeedback, which is the application of the statistical analysis while the person is getting the neurofeedback. In other words, if we use the example that I mentioned before, let's say someone is too much slowing and they're at plus five deviations from the norm, at the end of every training session, they do a Z-score analysis, and they see if the Z-score is going up or down, or if it's changing. You know, if it's going up, the treatment is wrong. If it's going down, the treatment is correct. So that Z-score tells the practitioner, the therapist, that what they're doing is right or wrong. It also tells them when to stop because they do that after every treatment, and they get graphs. So it's pretty, it's pretty scientific and pretty objective, and. Um, Everybody who gets neurofeedback should get that type of neurofeedback. And there's actually a book. I didn't write the book, but I contributed a chapter called Loretta's Z-Score Neurofeedback that was published in 2014. Um, and um, the publisher is um, um, two international experts in EEG and QEG and neurofeedback who, who, I, who I actually know and work with. So I'm very lucky about that. So the other test is called SPECSCAN, which is an abbreviation for Single Photon Emission Computed Tomography, which means you get slices of the brain just like you get in the MRI scan. But this is a nuclear medicine test, so it requires an injection of a radioactive isotope, which is injected um, intravenously. And then as this uh, isotope is absorbed from the body and comes out of the body, then uh, the person's head is put next to a camera 
and as the activity comes out, the um, camera counts it, and um, the uh, computer receives the counts and creates a um, a picture. And the picture we get is black and white in color, and it's a it's a blood flow study. And we have these color bar scales, which I always demonstrate when I write my report. And the general rule of thumb is that the brain is a highly metabolic organ, requires lots of blood flow, in fact, requires between 20 and 25% of the total output of the heart, whereas the weight of the brain represents only about 1% of the body. So there's a disproportionate amount of blood flow indicating very high metabolic demand. And at the same time, the brain is very sensitive to any loss of blood flow. So if there's 20% more of a reduction of blood flow, the cells begin to suffer. And we can see that on the scan and it's objective. And there's patterns that are characteristic that we see in trauma. And anybody that has complaints and symptoms, they have this typical traumatic pattern, which is a decrease of blood flow. And um, that's amenable to treatment. And we can also document increase of blood flow after the treatment because I've done that and that's included in my book too. And I know my listeners, I've got plenty of listeners who have been in auto accidents, and so they've they've most likely suffered some sort of concussion-type syndrome. And maybe they're looking for, you know, you've, we've talked about how to objectify, how to, how to diagnose it. But you're actually working on a book where you're talking about three proven methods to heal the brain. So because I have plenty of patients who, after their accident, that's what they want to know is, are they going to ever get better? And so talk about those proven methods that you use to heal the brain. So the, the two methods we've already spoken of, the first method is the neurofeedback, which is how to correct the abnormal brain waves. And the second method is based upon the spec scan. Now, having said that the spec scan shows a decrease of blood flow, in 1990, I postulated that if the problem is decrease of blood flow, wouldn't the treatment be an increase of blood flow? Anyway, so I prescribed the medication for the condition of the blood flow problem in post-concussion, and, and the, the hypothesis turned out to be correct. Everybody got better. So that was the second um, part of the treatment. Um, in around the same time, I had also, um, in talking to colleagues and so forth, found out that hyperbaric oxygen, which is the chambers that the divers go in when somebody comes up too fast and they get the bends, that the hyperbaric oxygen chamber was also very beneficial to the brain. Many people know that hyperbaric oxygen is used for wound healing. In fact, the insurance pays for that. If the person fails to respond to all the standard treatment, unless they have a wound in the extremity and they're facing an amputation. Well, many times when they go for the hyperbaric treatment and the oxygen helps in healing because you need oxygen to create healing, um, they can save a limb. Well, you know, the, the brain is an organ that gets wounded. They just, you just can't see it unless you do these two functional tests. And that's why hyperbaric oxygen helps. Actually, there's about eight different mechanisms that have been um, elucidated 
as to how hyperbaric oxygen helps to heal the brain. So, and that brings up a good point because we have people who may be experiencing these different types of uh, trauma and they could be parents of kids, they could be adults. What would you say is the point where they should actually uh, pursue further maybe their condition if they weren't properly diagnosed at the ER? Well, they they need to know and need, need to learn what the proper diagnostic tests are, which is the QEG and the spec scan. They need okay, to find good. a physician who can order that. Um, in fact, I, I, I thought about how I could help people get, get the proper testing done. And what I did was in my book, at the end of the chapter, each chapter under QEG and spec scan, because I have a dedicated chapter to talk about each one, I have an example of a, of a prescription that any doctor can write, which uh, what I did was I took one of my blank prescriptions and I filled it out, you know, what the diagnosis is and what the test is. And then, uh, you know, any doctor can just copy that and then they can go get the test done. Well, you're making it pretty easy for them then. <laughs> so I, I've learned you have to spoon feed people, you know. <laughs> So one thing you also mentioned or on your website, it mentions that integrative neurology actually incorporates a lot of the medical things that we've talked about as well as supplements nutrition. What type of supplements would you say you prescribe for people who suffer from concussion uh, that maybe you find that maybe helps speed up the recovery, if any? Well, that's, a, that's an entire chapter in my book. <laughs> But I can just mention a, a few, um, you know, right now. Um, many things happen in the brain in terms of what we call the pathophysiology, which means the mechanism of what goes wrong. Um, like any other organ, any other injury, uh, there's inflammation, which means anti-inflammatories can be beneficial. Um, main the main advantage of um, natural-based anti-inflammatory is that it doesn't uh, cause terrible side effects like the prescription drugs, which I don't like to use. But if I use them, I use them sparingly for shortest amount of time. And there are specific anti-inflammatories that can enter the brain because the brain has a protective circulation called the blood-brain barrier. Another category is antioxidants because of what's called oxidative stress and there are several different ones that can be used for that um, alpha lipoic acid um, reduced form of glutathione vitamin C vitamin E and the list goes on um, there's also um, damage to the myelin which is the protective sheath and the precursors to myelin can be taken in terms of supplements as well. Omega-3 fatty acids um, uh, can be very helpful. Um, one of them, uh, which is called um, phosphatidylserine, is a vital component inside the cell membrane. Cell membrane is important to maintain the conduction of the nervous impulse. And there are some other examples, too. 
Now, when you're talking about omega-3s, that's one that I try and get all my patients who are post-traumatic uh, on, on a high dose of omega-3 or what they would consider high dose. Usually, what, what's your recommendation as far as uh, typical dosage uh, when you've got someone who needs to be on these uh, omegas? Uh, I like to use at least uh, two, between, I would say, two and four grams a day, and I instruct patients to take them after the meal. I also advise patients that there is no regulatory agency to control the quality control of supplements, and so you really don't know what you're getting. The only way to know is to ask for something called the Certificate of Analysis, which is a laboratory analysis which should be performed by at least two outside independent labs of the raw product and during production and post-production. And I would advise patients that if they can't get the certificate, then go to another company that will provide it. I know the Life Extension talks about this in their magazine every month, and they make their certificates readily available to anyone who asks. They advertise that most of their products are pharmaceutical grade. Yeah, and I, I'm the same. I, I recommend about three to four grams uh, as well. And usually people take it, do a double take because, again, you're, you're telling them that's three or four pills, those big pills a day. Yep. And that's only yep. if they have, like you said, a high-grade, high-quality. Sometimes they're just taking the 500s, and they feel overwhelmed by having to take more wind. Like you said, to, to what you said, they may not even be uh, you know, pure. Well, you don't know what you're getting, you know, and... Periodically, somebody like Consumer Reports generates reports about, you know, well, we took, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z supplement from, you know, this company and that company, and, you know, this one didn't have uh, what they said or it had something different. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a free-for-all out there. No, it is, and it can be very con- uh, confusing to, you know, anyone trying to improve their health or heal themselves. Right. I agree. So you've got the book coming out soon. It's The Concussion Cure, Three Proven Methods to Heal the Brain. If people want to connect with you, how do they find out about you? Where do they go? Well, they can go to my uh, traditional website, which is www.brainhealing.com, or they can send me an email at paulwan, P-A-U-L-W-A-N-D-M-D, at gmail.com. Or if they prefer to use the old-fashioned telephone, they can call my office at area code 954-344-9772. Yeah, and I really appreciate that. You, you, you Listeners, you know that this doctor cares because he gave you his, his personal email, which is really great. Um, so I appreciate <laughs> that because... <laughs> So I really appreciate it. It's great having you on the show today, Dr. Wand. I appreciate all your insight. I look forward to your book release and wish you the best. Thank you very much. And call me anytime you have any questions. If you have a patient, whatever, I'll be glad to help you out. Thanks for listening to the Heal Better Fast podcast at www.healbetterfast.com.